The Women's Economic Equality Task Force says Australians appear to have accepted women's continued economic inequality as normal. Yep, we're all used to it now, apparently, and perhaps we assume it's here to stay. But recent economic analysis says that if women were able to fully participate in the workforce, it would pump $128 billion into our economy every year. Joining me now is a member of the Women's Economic Equality Task Force, Therese Edwards. She's also the Executive Director of the National Council of Single Mothers and Their Children. Therese, great to have you on the program. Thanks so much for having me. We have with us too Luke Actestrat, who's the CEO of the Council of Small Business Owners of Australia, COSBOA. Small business is one of the largest employers of women in the private sector. Luke, welcome. Thanks for having me. And Evie Fox-Koob is with us today too. She's a senior economist at Deloitte Access Economics. They put together that modelling about how much women could boost our collective wealth. Evie, great to speak with you. Thanks for having me. Therese Edwards, this idea that women's economic equality inequality is being normalised, what do you mean by that? It's a great question. So when we talk about it being normalised, we're talking about it, we just accept it. So we we have in Australia actually one of the most, we're, we're, one, we're a country that has some of the most rigid gender norms and and that and particularly how that plays out is we just expect that women will undertake the bulk of the care that women will probably work part time that women will probably work in really seg- feminized segregated areas such as uh, the care industry the aged care the child care and that and that their earnings over a life course will be really diminished and that having children is born, the cost of having children is mostly on the shoulders of the women. So we wanted to give some visibility to that, but also we wanted to call it out and say, look, it's not really part of a contemporary society. And in doing so, we condemn women to a really persistent, less equitable life course from sort of the, from go to woe. So there, there isn't just particular points. It seems to hang around for, for much too long. And Therese, I guess I'm interested in that thinking that, that that gender pay gap and that inequity across the board is normal. I guess you could be excused for thinking it's normal in the sense of extremely common. But but are people saying, oh, well, I guess it's unfair, but what can you do? Or, you know, because this, this exists and isn't changing. Or are people thinking this is what women have chosen? I don't think it's a choice. So what we have in Australia, we really have a very much a, um, a male breadwinner model. And when women work, it's often to supplement that income rather than to, to have a career. And, and then they often put their careers on hold. And if they're doing that, that childcare work, that, that really intensive hard work, what does happen is then they miss out on, on those career aspirations and that stepping up the ladder because it's very hard to do those you know, additional courses, attending those trainings, those events, the interstate travel, all of those important parts in the workforce are often not 
conducted by the people who also undertake that really high paid um, paid work. So what what can happen and what does happen in Australia, all our policies are also structured around that. So we just accept that that's part of part of life and and we get on with it. And then when there's some real um, bumps in the road, whether it is through ill health or a breakdown in a relationship or, or um, as we know, women, whenever we hit a downturn in the economy, it's usually women who are... Um, are the first to to lose their jobs and often the last to get back on. So when we have those real bumps, those fractures that are can be sort of, um, I suppose, coated over for a little while, they're really exposed. And that and and there's some real sting in the tail about that. So in my world, where I I speak to women who head up their parent their their family and also other main breadwinner, often they're also victims of gendered violence. So when we have a system where we really, really have those gender stereotypes, there's some real nasties right at the end of that. We're speaking with Therese Edwards, who was on the Women's Economic Equality Task Force, which handed down this report recently. Just quickly, Therese, the report quantifies the financial cost to women who provide the bulk of unpaid care and housework, women who do have children. And it was a pretty startling figure. Can you tell us a little bit about that? It is startling, isn't it? And that's that's why it's so good to have that conversation because without having that conversation, that's what we talk about when we say that it's absolutely um, normalised. So with with Australia, um, and and I really I really did enjoy um, you talking about the thirty percent of of men who don't think inequality exists and. That is because, and that's such an indicator. So if I can talk about um, a young young man and a young woman, maybe in the both 25, if, if, if either of them had a child, like um, an, an Australian woman, she would, she would lose, she would earn less, about a million dollars less over her lifetime than um, a father of of a child, and they're both age twenty five. So we're, we're talking about from as soon as you start in the career, how we've set up our systems, there are really some inequitable outcomes. And of course, then that goes on to produce what you were talking about that that gender pay gap. And then you've got the at the end of your life course, you've got those different balances in um, in superannuation and and owning their own home and so if often it's um you know there's not that same sort of assets as well so it's all in those points but if i can really go back to the part where you were talking about the um the pay placements we found in our briefings a part of what the um the women's economic equality task force was fortunate enough to have is the skill set of the public service and so they could briefers and one of the areas that we found is there was even though Australia have a really high level of education for women what we did notice and um, unearthed in the statistics is that there is a high level of placements that that are not complete so so you know courses are to get a a degree often it's three to four years and then that stumbling block is often at that very last 
um, field placements. So for in some places, and particularly again in those feminised places, they can be two to three months of actually undertaking a field placement. And if you're not fortunate enough to have the backup of a family who can help with those expenses, you know, the the rent and, and, and helping out, chances are that you won't get through that mm. placement. And so we've got this disjuncture of where we have a really um, crying out needs of of, of employees, where we've got skill shortages. And on the other side of the ledger, we've got people saying, oh, I've not only not been able to get my career, I now have a hex debt yeah. and I just don't know how to break back into that labour market. Yeah, and it was really interesting reading the reports around these recommendations, that pervasive sense of exhaustion and frustration. These were these two words that came up that women are feeling at trying to, as you say, break back in, break through these stiff barriers to economic equality. We're speaking with Therese Edwards, who was on the Women's Economic Equality Task Force. And we have with us today too, Luke Act Strat, who's the CEO of COSBOA, the Council of Small Business Owners Australia, and Evie Fox-Koob, who's a senior economist at Deloitte Access Economics. And we'll drill down a little bit into your responses soon. But I want to take a couple of calls from our listeners now. Francis is in Byron Bay. Francis, what do you think of these uh, recommendations when you look back at your own life course? Um, oh, hi, thanks for the opportunity to, to talk. And I'm so passionate about this topic. I, my comment was that as someone young, I split up with my um, son's father when he was one. And the thing that really helped me in terms of gender economic inequality was my parents had a house that I could rent for $25 a week. So that enabled me to go to uni. I did my undergrad, then I did a master's, and then I've gone on to do a PhD and I've worked in the area of like domestic violence. And so I think just having that opportunity where I didn't have to worry about money so much was so key to what I was able to achieve. Yes, so indeed. I really like these reports and these reforms, these potential reforms. It's so important. So, Francis, what do you think would have happened if you hadn't had that? Where do you think you might have veered towards instead? Well, it would have taken a lot longer to finish my degree to start with because I was able to access like a couple of days daycare. That was the other thing that I could ha- I had really affordable daycare from family daycare. Um, I still had to work on weekends to support myself. I think it probably would have just taken a lot. Um, I come from a family. I've all gone to uni. I would have gone. I have got would have got my degree, but it probably just would have been a lot harder and taken a lot longer and it just would have been so much more stressful to have to work and I teach at uni now I actually teach nursing students and I see what the um, and I'm particularly passionate about supporting particularly older women to come back to study because it's so hard but what the students have to do now to like you're talking about in a nursing degree so I think for me not to have to do all that extra work was amazing like such an amazing help Mm, to get through Thanks so much for that call, Francis. Because as you mentioned, you know, you come from a family that uh, did go to uni and, and there might have been that kind of background support, whereas a lot of other people, if they don't have that, it's even harder to, to finish that degree. Elizabeth's in Preston in Victoria. Elizabeth, you've got a, a view from people uh, who don't have children. Tell us. Yeah, I'm just thinking, I wonder why people, the young people want to push so hard and miss out on the formative years of their children and get to work. I understand the need for work and, and um, you know, to be having a good career, et cetera, et cetera, but they're pushing so hard and I'm wondering if you just 
in, in, encouraging people to tread on the, you know, the the old financial wheels of society instead of saying, you know, go lateral and 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 stop farming kids out to daycare so much and and maybe enjoy the child and think we've well, got a bonus there. Could you see it, though, Elizabeth, as saying we want to give blokes the opportunity to do that as well? Because if we even it up a bit, then everybody gets to do a bit of work and a bit of parenting. Absolutely, absolutely. You know, absolutely women have to have a better go, but I think they're also chucking the baby out with the bathwater, you know, with what's being said here. Well, and there's a text that supports you uh, from Margaret. Having children is a choice. Stop whinging. Elizabeth, thanks for that call. Another text on an alternative perspective. Paid parental leave is not a cost. It's an investment that returns. Now, we've been bandying about quite a few figures, and one of them that really struck me was the idea that if we increase women's participation in the workforce, it pumps $128 billion a year into our economy. Jane Hume, the Shadow Finance Minister, spoke to Patricia Carvelis on RN Breakfast earlier today and she wanted clarification about that figure. It's pretty huge. Here's a bit of what she had to say. I did want to go back and see where uh, where that where that number came from. And yes, you're right, it was from a Deloitte report. Again, I think I'd like to dig in a little bit deeper just to find out exactly what that $128 billion I'm means. I'm hearing in your voice we know that yes. you, you're a little sceptical of it. Am I right? Well, it's an enormous amount of money and it's not just you know over 10 years. That's every single year that Deloitte are saying if we remove the barriers to women's full participation in the economy that, uh, that the, would add value to the economy. Jane Hume, the Shadow Finance Minister. Evie fox that's from your work in Deloitte Access Economics' Breaking the Norm report, uh, where you're a senior economist. Could you explain for our listeners how you arrived at that $128 billion per annum figure? Sure. So the $128 billion represents the benefit to the Australian economy of reducing prescriptive gender norms. So everything we've been talking about today in terms of the norms around how people should behave based on their gender, including at home and at work. Um, And as was referenced, it's the average annual boost to gross domestic product um, over the next 50 years from changing gender norms. Um, And we modelled this by considering how abandoning norms would reduce barriers to women's full economic participation. We looked at two main sort of components for this. So one is having a larger talent pool, so more women working more hours, um, but also a more efficient talent pool, so more gender balanced occupations and industries, which would drive higher productivity. Um, And we estimated this by setting targets for women's labour force participation, hours worked and productivity, and then modelling the impact of reaching these targets earlier over the next 50 years based on abandoning these gender norms. Um, And I think importantly, as we've discussed today, you know, gender norms can seem like quite an abstract concept, but actually there's a whole range of literature showing the influence that they have on how we think and act and ultimately um, the the consequences for the economy. Um, And yes, it's a really big number, but I think it's important to recognise, you know, we're talking about half of the population who are currently constrained in terms of their economic um, potential. So that's sort of why we see such a big result if we could change these gender norms. And Evie, it's interesting to see that your modelling didn't uh, take into account the non-economic benefits of boosting participation and productivity and hours worked. But you did note those non-economic benefits. What are some of them? Some of the economic benefit, uh, non-economic benefits include that research shows in a um, heterosexual household, for example, that when um, 
the care work at home and paid work is more equally shared, that the people in the household are happier and healthier. Um, so there's a range of research like that. Um, and I think there's sort of the, the other social benefits like we were talking about in terms of uh, domestic violence and other areas of society that would be influenced by having those more um, or less traditional, I guess, gender norms. Let's uh, get the COSBOA perspective, the Council of Small Businesses of Australia. Luke Actistrat, you're the CEO. What do you think of some of the task force's recommendations? Longer paid parental leave, including super, more access to childcare support for employing older women. What's your view? Hilary, I think the report shines a really important light on a really important topic. You know, if I look at this from a small business perspective, there's quite a few parallels here. You know, about one third of small business owners are female. Um, So that's obviously less than half, but that number's increased from about 16 or 17% in the 1970s. So certainly there's been a fair bit of improvement on that front. We've actually received, you know, federal government funding to initiate a program called Enterprising Me, which is about supporting female founders and entrepreneurs. And some of the research indicates, you know, they face barriers to finance, um, you know, networking barriers as well to get their businesses off the ground. So well, yes, so- I mean, that, that sounds like one plank, but surely we need broader things too, don't we? Because not everybody who is home with kids is going to want to start a small business. We're going to need moves that deal with, uh, you know, meaningful work access and a decent wage. Are there, uh, what are your thoughts about the, the general thrust of this report? Yeah, I think the general thrust is going in the right direction. As I say, it's shining a light on a very important topic. I think that economic modelling is really important. I think what's important, though, is this mindset shift as well about actually giving you know men and women the confidence that they can start a business, that you know we do need the next generation of entrepreneurs coming through. Look, as you say, you do need a systemic or sort of structural approach to these issues. It's a structural problem. So that the range of measures around super care, you know, removing some of these sort of what appear to be silly disincentives where, you know, women are disincentivized from seeking work if it affects their other subsidies available. I think there's a lot that can be explored and and initiated there as well. Um, I note um, the closing the loopholes bill, which is currently in the Senate, there's measures in there which remove sort of discrimination against, you know, victims of family domestic violence. Um, Senator David Pocock um, and Lambie have asked for that bill um, to be split so that that really important amendment can get through as soon as possible. So I think as the report says, you've got some pretty quick, you know, short-term measures that can be brought onto the table really quickly, but then you've got a 10-year plan, Mm. um, you know, about getting a lot of these structural changes on foot. Um, And I think for a lot of small businesses, it's just understanding you know, what government support is there, what toolkits are available, ultimately who's going to pay. You know, I think the costings around the, the common, or at least the Commonwealth paid parental leave scheme they're referring to, that's not a cheap thing to initiate, but certainly as one of your um, listeners phoned in, it is an investment and I would we would support that view. Um, and we've, probably the most exciting thing from the report from a small business perspective is this idea of actually creating a bit of a task force coming out of the um, the panel uh, of employer groups and unions looking to work together over a period of time with government to say, well, how can we actually do a bit of a deep dive into some of those industries um, and look at how we can improve female representation? And that's where COSBOL would be very up for that conversation, very up for the fight. Because as I say, um, we've got a generation of entrepreneurs that we're missing out on. Um, the typical entrepreneur is now a 60-year-old um, male. So we need to change that. We need to make sure we're getting younger people in. We need to make sure we're getting more females in and to really make sure we, Australia remains a, a bit of an ideas economy mm. um, and that, that small business benefit 
um, is something that's accessible to everyone. There's also a push, Luke, to ensure that the minimum wage is high enough to be considered a living wage. How does Cosbauer feel about that? Look, the minimum wage is something that we will always have you know, a nuanced view around, and it really depends on you know the annual wage decision each year, um, which is done by the Fair Work Commission, and just trying to understand where that fits in the economic environment and the inflationary environment. Certainly, a lot of small business owners would pay above the award rate, um, and that's something they want to do. You know, we've got a really acute labour shortage on at the moment, um, Hillary, so a lot of the wage growth has actually occurred just through that tightening of the labour market. The employment white paper had some interesting um, concepts in there about trying to incentivise um, you know, a higher participation rate. And I think that's picking up on some of Evie's points as well. The big economic dividend from some of these changes can come from higher productivity and higher participation. So certainly, you know, I think Australia's minimum wage would be one of the highest in the world, but certainly we want to make sure we're rewarding workers and incentivising them and giving them pathways to be earning well, well and truly above that minimum award wage uh, at the right time and in the right industry. We're speaking with Luke Akterstraat, who is the CEO of COSBOA, the Council of Small Business Owners Australia, and Evie Fox-Koob, who's a senior economist at Deloitte Access Economics, who's crunched some of these numbers that have uh, informed the Women's Economic Equality Task Force report handed down recently. Therese Edwards is one of the members of that task force and also the executive director of the National Council of Single Mothers and Their Children. And they're all our guests on Life Matters today. Let's take some calls because this is a very multi faceted topic and it's raising some really interesting views. Matthew in Canberra, welcome. Oh, good day, Hilary. How are you? Good. What are your thoughts on this? Um, I've often wondered why having children doesn't uh, incur an extra tax burden. Raising children is a big imposition on uh, other taxpayers. Is so it? I'm just scared to comment on that. Well, educating other people's children costs an absolute fortune, I understand. And I wonder why those of us who choose not to have children have to subsidise those who do. Where is the fairness in that? Well, I guess if we educate them, they end up being tomorrow's scientists and teachers and entrepreneurs and thinkers. I would still be those if we didn't pay to educate them and their parents paid to educate them, would they not? Well, I don't know. Could could the parents afford to educate them individually? Well, exactly. And we need a a shrinking population for environment's sake. So why on earth aren't children attracting a, a tax burden? That's another very rich debate, isn't it, the population level. Virginia's called in from Wagga. Virginia, tell us a little bit about your story, because it's quite representative, I think. Uh, yes, look, I, look, I'm at the other end of the spectrum, and this is what is something that I'm, I'm passionate about. That's older women um, uh, who find themselves... Um, I've worked all my life, and there's, there's thousands and thousands of us um, who have no superannuation, or maybe $1,500, I think the average is, and um, and find themselves, if you're divorced or separated, um, so many women now are living in their cars. Um, it, this is this is a huge national catastrophe, and I've had four children, but it's um, it's basically hindered you know my capacity to because I wanted to work part time, so it's hindered my capacity to build up any superannuation. And I just fear for the thousands of women coming behind me who'll never have any property or anything. This is this should be this is a national catastrophe, and it should be considered a priority. Virginia, it sounds like it's had a big impact on your life. The the, the many kind of incremental uh, losses of opportunity. Yes, yeah, but particularly at this stage of life, where I'm I'm 
I find myself in a position where I'm borderline homeless. Yeah. Um, just that this is, I, I can't, this, uh, this is a national crisis, Hillary. And so I know we're talking about um, all sorts of other women, perhaps younger women, and, and building up that equality. But um, we've meanwhile got an enormous social dislocation issue happening with homeless older women who've, who've worked all their lives. Yep. Yeah, and as you say, you know, I mean, it's 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 all it's women across all life stages, isn't it? Older women are going to become younger women. Uh, sorry, younger women are going to become older women too. Yes, Virginia, they will. Yes, yes. I, I wish you all the best. This is something we hear about very regularly on Life Matters, and it is heartbreaking, appalling, and enraging, as you say. Thanks for your call. Thank you. Lots of texts popping in. Uh, Who's going to pay for the pension to top up uh, Margaret's uh, super, the the people saying why should we have kids? While having kids is a choice, it also supports a functioning society. And uh, I've always wondered how many parents would stay at home to look after their own kids if they could afford to, says Stephen in Tasmania. It's time to start paying for all of that unpaid work. And I note that Stephen doesn't put a gender in there. Why not 52 weeks parental leave, but only 26 weeks per parent, says another person. And Jenny in Warrnambool, you're, you're really looking at the, the through line of what Virginia in Wagga was talking about, aren't you? That end of life issue. Yeah, look, um, sorry, I'm from Wollongong. Oh, sorry. Um, that's all right. Um, look, I think there really is an issue with that we don't have end of life carers leave. And I think a lot of uh, caring at end of life is done by women and they often leave their jobs to care and then they don't they can't re-enter the workforce um i also think the other thing i think is that you know it is a way to uh, create more about gender balance because we could you know the, you know with our siblings we could all you know share the care so it's not necessarily giving somebody full-time care off it might be a day a week care off so i think it's something we need to really think about and also in terms of the the social benefit that we think about the burden of care but we don't think about the joy of care and you know I think maybe we should be saying you know let's not miss it let's not miss the opportunity yep thanks for your call Jenny on that a text says I'm not farming out my kids to daycare I'm ensuring they have a safe place to live and food to eat yes it was my choice to have them but it certainly wasn't a choice to pay exorbitant housing and speech pathology costs plus the ever increasing cost of food what am I supposed to do put them back and you can see the impacts that uh, economic disadvantage is having uh, on people uh, and this text is fascinating please do tell us which industries and employers pay women less contrary to law Therese Edwards, I think that's an example of that scepticism some people feel that, you know, in a developed country uh, where we have quite a highly educated uh, population, that this inequity is happening. As you, your report, report pointed out, a lot of people assume that, that there isn't a gender pay gap or that that inequity isn't happening. Uh, tell us a bit more about that. Sure. And I understand that question because, you know, I think it was in the 1970s where there was a, um equal pay um, um, handed down where, where men and women in the same job received the same amount. So we, ha- we have this belief that we've tucked away and we've, we've managed and we've dealt with that. But then when you just dig a little bit deeper, you find out that, gee, you know, the wages where women tend to go 
are really poorly paid when you look at where the um, the employment places where where men tend to go. And you've got to start looking at why that is the case. Is it because we just completely undervalue anything that's associated with women or care? And so we've got an inequitable arrangement there. And then even if you unpack those feminised workplaces, often there's a bit of a glass ceiling, a glass elevator for the guys as well. So they they tend to sort of get up those ropes a little bit better. So there there is a, a discussion regarding the... Um, the gender pay gap, which sits a little bit outside of of the law, so you'd call it is quite right. There is 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 law, but there's a lots of ways to get around that, and there's lots of ways of of keeping women in those lower pay positions. And then, of course, with superannuation contributions, which you know currently sits at nine percent, but I think in 2025 it hits up to 12 percent, then you even have more reduced end of of life work um, earnings. And then if you look at the proportion of women who undertake um, precarious pay or in in lower awards pay or perhaps on that part-time step, it all starts to add up. So those figures that were um, provided before by Evie, it's not hard to start to see how how it actually raised, how we arrive at that. And so it, it really goes back to that opening statement of what you made is how we just normalise it, how we just accept it. And I really had um, some empathy for your previous caller that spoke about women doing the the care at the end of the life. So women are often that care sandwich. So they 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 put it all in for their children, and it is choice and love, and there's no no denying that. But they also have to make sure that those children, in part of giving their their love, time, and care, that there is food on the table, and they can pay for the, for all the. the the bills that is part of raising children, then they might get back into the workforce. And I suspect it's not at full time and I suspect it's not as high as what it would have been if they didn't have that interrupted um, work history. And then they might be just finding their feet and then they're off to care for um, for, for elderly parents. So, so we do put a lot of that unpaid, hard toil, that emotional work is still born too much on women's shoulders. Just very quickly, Therese, we've got less than a minute left to speak, but how optimistic are you that the government will take this on board? The language they're using is very much about, ooh, tight budget, great big thanks to the task force members, uh, but there's not a, a kind of wholesale acceptance yet I'm seeing. I am completely optimistic. I live in optimism. I think they set up this task force. We we were we were enabled by the Minister of Women, who also is the Minister of Finance, to be bold and audacious. And we understand it's a conversation that we've got to take people with us. And it was very much why we structured some short-term um, opportunities and recommendations and that longer-term game. And I really think that... Um, that the government is up for it. It is an investment. It is unleashing. It is, we're, we're at this point in time now, we've got skill shortages, but yet we've got these amazing women that just want to have those structures removed and they can bounce into those, those roles. And then our children are then 
a better place. They're equipped, they're safe, they have a secure housing and they're gaining that education and they're our future leaners, our, our, our future um, opportunities and also our future taxpayers. So, yes. it, so it makes so much sense. So why not investing in our children? Because without them, we don't have a, have a future. So I think that there is sense in this. It is been well structured and I'm completely optimistic that there will be some really tangible outcomes and I'm excited to be part of it. I hope to ride that wave of optimism with you, Therese. Thanks for your time today. Therese Edwards was on the Women's Economic Equality Task Force and is the Executive Director of the National Council of Single Mothers and Their Children. Luke Actestrat is CEO of the Council of Small Business Owners Australia. Thanks so much for your time today, Luke. And Evie Fox-Coob is a Senior Economist at Deloitte Access Economics. Uh, the government has that report now and plans to respond to it with a national strategy for gender equality to be released next year. ABCRN helps you understand the world. Find more of our stories on the ABC Listen app.